This is Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. You're no doubt aware of the hot button issue that is gender identity. During this Pride Month, we have seen backlash against brands like Bud Light and Target for recognizing and in that way tacitly supporting the fact that gender identities exist and are fluid. But a fluid gender spectrum is just another layer on the cake of complicated gender politics in our country. For a long time, we've thought of this stuff as feminism versus patriarchy. But our guest today argues that it's much, much more complicated than that. They argue that not only is gender a verb, not a noun, but that everyone hurts in a patriarchal society, including men. You can start to see that the way that gendering actually works is not to lift men up and push women down. Gender is a very complex regulatory process that is constantly happening between us and every single person that we encounter. Robin Dembroff joins us on today's episode of Hear Me Out. Stay with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back on Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. Before Pride Month ends, we want to chat about another hot topic in this country, gender politics. Sure, a big part of LGBTQ plus identity is often sexuality, but it's often also related to gender identity. As a reminder, sex is what you're born with. Gender is how you identify. So if your gender identity matches the sex you were assigned at birth, you are cisgender. I'm cisgender. If not, you might be transgender or non-binary or gender fluid or any number of identities that are all grouped together under the queer umbrella. Gender fluidity is not a new thing. There are examples of non-binary humans going back thousands of years to the Iron Age and even the Copper Age. But If gender is fluid, it's more difficult to frame it as a tug of war between two sexes. LGBTQ plus rights are under attack throughout the country. And in some ways, the binary is being enforced more aggressively than ever. There are still those who say, despite all evidence to the contrary, that women are not disadvantaged in the workplace, that there is no gender pay gap. And if a woman is a breadwinner, she's emasculating the men in her life. But if she stays at home, she's lazy. And men are still seen as weak when they express emotions that are not either anger or courage. And when singer Harry Styles wears a dress on the cover of Vogue, pundits angrily declare that masculinity is dead. Harry Styles, please stick to Armani menswear or at least pants. You look ridiculous. And the pearls are a really bad look. The United States is still very much a patriarchal society. And sometimes that basic truth is interpreted to mean that while the rest of us struggle, cisgender men have it made so long as they conform to gender expectations. So no ballet, no watercolors, gentlemen. Fighting the patriarchy to make this country safer and more equitable for all of us requires knowing what we're up against. So what if the patriarchy isn't men first, everyone else last, and instead, patriarchy is everybody's enemy, including men? Robin Dembroff, an assistant professor in Yale's philosophy department, joins us to make that argument. Hi, Robin. Hi, thank you for having me. 
I'm really excited for this conversation because as a non-binary person, I suspect you have thought about this in ways I have not. Um, tell me your argument in a nutshell to begin this. Y you, as I understand it, believe that patriarchy um, hurts men equally to an equal degree that it hurts women? Is that right? Yeah, before we get to that question, I think we need to start a few steps back. So I actually want to go to something you said in the intro when you said sex is something you're born with and gender is something you identify as. I actually think the picture is much more complicated. So to tell you a little bit about me that helps you understand my perspective on gender, I grew up as someone who is very androgynous from as early as I could remember. Like my body stayed the same as I moved between various contexts, whether it was at the grocery store, at church, with my family, on a sports team. But the way people gendered me changed drastically depending on what space I was in and even which person I was talking to. Some people saw me as a boy, other people saw and treated me as a girl, and yet other people would ask, is that a boy or a girl, right, to my mother's great dismay. And so what that taught me is that, yes, there are physical features that we're born with that are certainly relevant to understanding how gender operates in our world, but how you get categorized as male or female or as a man or as a woman is itself a set of social standards that can differ across people and differ across contexts. And what that constant moving taught me was that gender is not a noun. Gender is a verb. Gender is gender-ing. It's the process of classifying each other as either a man or a woman and then holding that person accountable to certain standards that we've internalized, which again differ quite a lot across people in context, for what's expected of you as a man or as a woman. So hold that part fixed, right? That gender is gender-ing. Gender is, some, is a form of regulation that we do to each other, that we do to ourselves all the time, and that institutions like the state and financial markets do to us. And so then when you add to that, that the standards for what it takes to classify someone as a man or a woman, and then the standards that they're held to as a man, or as a woman, thoroughly integrate things like notions of capital, racial meanings, meanings of disability, all of these sorts of things, you can start to see that the way that gendering actually works is not to lift men up and push women down. Gender is a very complex regulatory process that is constantly happening, not only between ourselves and ourselves, but between us and every single person that we encounter. And the way that that process works is not to create a binary hierarchy. The way that process works is to push down women, but to many various degrees, depending on how well they approximate powerful ideas of what women should be, which are white, which are wealthy, etc. They push down the majority of men, and we can see this historically, how ideas of what manhood is have been weaponized, particularly against men of color, against men with disabilities, against queer men. And what this process actually does is lift one very small group to the top, which is a group I call real men, which is the group of institutional elites who most closely approximate our most powerful ideas in our society of what men are and what men should be. Describe that group, this tiny... First of all, I, I totally get that there are some among our listeners who are, are, are maybe not keeping up here. Um, we are talking about gender and sexuality and society in ways that are um, maybe new to some people. And that's okay. Totally. That's okay. Totally all right, because all the things that you're talking about are to some people very new ways to think about it. And in many ways, that's exactly why you're talking about it that this way, because we've all been trained in a certain way to view gender and sexuality and society and culture. 
And um, this is kind of the work that you do is saying it doesn't have to be thought about this way. So that's okay if you're, you're feeling like you're lagging behind. It's all right. But can you describe this group that you'd call the real men? What does that look like? I think that real men are, in effect, the billionaires, the, the wealthy male billionaires of the world who have amassed the world's wealth and used many different kinds of ideas to justify and reinforce that economic and social inequality and gender is one of their main sets of ideas that they use to justify that inequality and to create division against everyone below them so that they don't actually address the income and social inequality. Okay, so with that said, um, in terms of clarifying what is meant by gender, let's go to the argument about patriarchy. And what I asked was whether the simple description of your view is that patriarchy hurts men to an equal degree that it hurts women. Is that accurate? I don't think that the groups men and women have the kind of uniform experiences of gender that would allow us to make that kind of comparison. So for example, it's true that white men earn more than white women in the workplace, but white women earn more than both black men and Hispanic men in the workplace, right? Their median hourly wage is actually higher. So when we talk about the groups men and women, we're talking about groups of people who have such vastly different experiences of being a man or of being a woman that I don't think it makes sense to use those two groups as a men versus women comparison. So you don't think that it's at all useful to talk about gender, even as a research topic, to to talk about sexual harassment or sexual discrimination in, in the workplace? Oh, I absolutely think we should talk about those things. I just think that we are not getting the picture right if we pretend that sexual harassment and so on only affects women or affects women equally or affects men equally, right? Actually, the statistics about who experiences these things in the workplace, in prison, all these contexts, it's much more complicated than a binary picture would suggest. But, but that's sort of like the the issue with any statistics, right? I mean, no, no statistic refers to an individual. They always refer to averages. I mean, in order to get any kind of picture of a, of a demographic, you're, you're going to get a picture of an unreal person. I mean, we're identifying trends, right? So when we talk about uh, trends within the workplace or, or we're studying any kind of discrimination or prejudice, we're always talking about the aggregate. We're never talking about specific people. That's sort of the nature of the study, right? Yes, you have to aggregate to do studies. But what I think is true of gender is that the way gender works, which is a form of, again, controlling or regulating people based on our ideas about manhood and womanhood, those aren't ideas that create a binary hierarchy. Actually, you know, one of the most, I think, victimized group by those ideas in our country is black men. I mean, and obviously black women, I'm not, I'm not trying to do a comparison here, but the fact that more than one in four black men are incarcerated in our society is not a irrelevant question to the question of what gender does in our society. The positioning of black men as hypermasculine, as predators, as criminals, all of these things, in order to justify a carceral system that takes them out of the workforce and gives an economic surplus in doing so to white working class men. That's that's part of the way gender works. It also has to do with the competition of manhood between white men and men of color. And the fact that white men 
are trying to hold onto their place as higher in the hierarchy of manhood than men of color. So what I'm saying is that the dynamics of gender are not something that happen only between men and women, and nor do they happen only in one direction between men and women. See, for example, the history of white women being complicit in taking part in lynch mobs against black men, right? Those are gender dynamics that are happening between men and women, but actually the power dynamic is flipped because of the way that gender works. Yeah, I, I guess we're, we'll take a break in just a few minutes, but I wonder I, I wonder how much of that is patriarch. You know, you're the professor here, so I, I want to be clear here. When we talk about patriarchy, we're talking about a system in which the father or the, 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 the male head of a family or group is the most powerful in, in a group or, or in which the men hold power in a, in a group of humans and women are excluded from it or, or a community where it's organized on, on men having the power. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about patriarchy? So here I think we have to go to the history of the term patriarchy. Originally, the term patriarchy within academic study meant what you're talking about, a form of household power that comes from Greco-Roman tradition of giving a man in a household power over the woman or women and children in his household. But what happened in the 1960s and what gave us the notion of patriarchy we have today is that radical feminists said, hey, gender hierarchy, gender inequality, gender harm doesn't only happen in the household. This is something that happens in every sphere of life. And so they took the term patriarchy and they said, let's use this term instead to talk about the arrangement of our society that creates that kind of inequality and harm in a systemic way throughout every part of our social experience. So how does that new version of patriarchy relate to what you're talking about um, in terms of the, the racism placing white women, for example, higher on the levels of power than black men? I think it's helpful here actually to go back to that intellectual history because I think the intervention that, you know, at, in the 1960s was mostly white middle-class feminists who were saying this, the intervention that they made was to say, hey, inequality in the world isn't a biologically determined outcome of how big our genitals are, right? This is something that happens because we have social meanings and ideas of womanhood that devalue women. And that's why these things keep systemically happening to women, people who are classified as women, which again, the same person could be classified as a woman in one context and treated as such and not in another. But let's set that aside. Then what happens right. is, and then in the 1980s, you get black and Chicana and lesbian feminists who come along and say, those ideas of womanhood that you all have been treating as homogenous actually aren't. My experience of being a woman in this world is very different than your white, middle class, cisgender, straight experience of being a woman in the world. And gender is not irrelevant to that. It's because ideas of female beauty are white. It's because ideas of motherhood and wifehood as an achievement of womanhood immediately put into question the womanhood of lesbians. You know, all of these aspects of womanhood create hierarchies between women. And that was the point that they made. And the, the real intervention I hope that we can all make now, you know, 40 years later, is to see that the same is true of manhood. There are very gross inequalities and harms that exist between men, and understanding the ideas of manhood are actually very integral for explaining those hierarchies. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, we are speaking with Robin Dembroff of Yale's philosophy department, and we're talking about 
whether or not patriarchy hurts everybody, not just females in our society. And we're going to continue talking about gender politics in just a moment. You're listening to Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And with us today is Robin Dembroff uh, from Yale's philosophy department talking about battles over gender and who gets hurt the most and whether anybody gets hurt the most. And as I understand it, and it's it's rare that I get this far into the conversation, Robin, when I don't, I don't entirely know if I have a full grasp on on what um, your argument is, because I, I've tried a couple times to um, articulate it, and I, I get corrected, rightly so. So let me try again. It sounds as though you're saying that the patriarchal society in which we live in, you're not disputing that we live in a patriarchal society, the patriarchal society in which we live in hurts everybody pretty equally. Is that accurate? I think maybe I should be clearer that I think that the notion of patriarchy that people are going to come into this show listening to it with is not the view of patriarchy that I have. And that's very integral. In the same way that when we discovered that the, you know, the sun doesn't rotate the earth, we had to change our concept of earth, right, to one where the earth rotates the sun, in fact. I think that the notion of patriarchy as a system that benefits men over women actually doesn't get the way that just gender works in our world correctly. It doesn't actually get at the lived realities of how gender creates systemic inequality and harms between groups of people. And when we actually look at what is that system, what is the system that creates systemic gender inequality and harm, it is not a system that puts men over women. It's a system that actually is designed to keep the most elite and wealthy men in power over everyone else. But it's it's really difficult for me to get away from the fact that... Um everyone else I, I mean yes it, it is correct that everyone else includes black and brown people it includes um p- members of the lgbtq plus community absolutely but there are specific um prejudices and there are specific discriminations that apply to those who are seen in society as female i mean there are specific things that relate to somebody who is black for example but if you say let's look at the african-american experience in the united states there is a different experience among black women than there is for black men um and so it's hard for me to to think that we're we're talking about sort of that we can set aside the gendered experience of patriarchy because there very much is a difference between the female experience of patriarchy as opposed to the male experience. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you that there is a difference. What I disagree with is that that difference is one that always benefits men over women. I also just think that that's not the right, it's not a men versus women process. So let me tell you a story, actually, this might help. During Reconstruction in North Carolina, white wealthy elites at the time had their power challenged by the fact that now black men were citizens and could vote. Yeah. And so what they did was they they intentionally created a campaign around what they called the best man. And they said the best man is a meritocratic ideal. It's just like the, the goodest man, right? The real man. Yeah. And you have to be a best man in order to deserve to hold public office. And then what they did was they described the best man in this campaign as things like 
economically successful, charitable leaders in their religious Protestant communities. They created standards of merit of manhood that encoded race, that encoded class. And this allowed them to say that Black men were not deserving of political enfranchisement because they were not the best men. And what I'm saying is that that is true at so many different levels of our society when we actually subject to scrutiny our ideas about what men and women ought to be like and how they get treated as men and as women. We start to see that what we might have thought were separate discriminations, like race or like class, those are actually built in to the way that we treat each other as women and as men. There's so much true in what you're saying, but I will say this in that within, say, for example, the African-American community, there is so much sexism. (laughs) There is so much gender discrimination between black men against black women and going back even to the days just after the Civil War. And, you know, even as recently as as the, the civil rights protests that came from the organizational skills and history of black women's organizations. And of course, all that we know in terms of history were these black men who stepped forward and in many cases refused to allow women to take leadership positions. Um, there is so much gender discrimination among that community that it's very difficult to ever separate that out. Is that what you're saying? Is that... Uh, no, definitely, I mean that I definitely don't think we should separate that out, right? The ways that we do gender patriarchal gender to each other, which includes the kinds of things that you're talking about, but also includes, right, white women falsely accusing black men of rape in order to get them lynched, right? These are all part of the way that gender works and punching down is one of the most central practices of masculinity, right? Like manhood in a patriarchal society is about having power over women and having power over other men. And this kind of punching down in order to solidify one's own status as a man is something that men are taught to do in a patriarchal society. What I don't think we should conclude from that is that therefore what this entire system creates, when we look not just at the relationships between black men and black women or white men and white women, but we actually step back and look at how gender constructs the relationships between all sorts of different groups. We start to see that when we narrow in to just these kind of very small comparisons, we're missing the bigger picture about the actual structure of inequality that this system creates. Okay, so we're going to take a break real quick, but I I would be remiss if I didn't address what is going to be on some of our listeners' mind, which is the issue of testosterone, which they're going to say makes men more prone to violence and more aggressive behavior and therefore um, makes a difference in the way that they encounter not just women, but everyone else in society. What's your response to that? I would uh, suggest that people read the book called Testosterone, an unauthorized autobiography by Rebecca Jordan Young and Katrina Carcasis, which completely debunks that. It's a really good book. I recommend it also. Um, I, I'm Celeste Headley. You are listening to Hear Me Out. And we are talking to Robin Dembroff from Yale's philosophy department. We're talking about gender. We will be back to talk about this more in just a moment. Stay with us. We're back. We're talking about the patriarchy. And with us is Robin Dembroff from Yale. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. And it's time to talk about the elephant in the room. And by elephant, I mean 
Joe Rogan and his buddies. So I I have to ask this, Robin, because as soon as I was doing research for this episode and I, I put in there who suffers the most in a patriarchal society, some of the very first things that came up were blog posts from members of the incel community, right? These were articles from men who feel they are victimized by feminists, um, that they are the biggest victims of what's called erroneously called cancel culture, that cisgendered heterosexual white men are uh, being targeted, um, that they are being discriminated against. And so as soon as I put in that thing of that men suffer from patriarchy, that is the first thing that came up. What is your response to this idea that uh, talking about men as suffering from this at all leads credence to that kind of argument? I think we need to look at the historical patterns because what you're describing is completely predictable and it's happened at many points of history before. When we are in times of economic crisis, white men who are used to an economic and so masculine advantage over men of color start doubling down on heteronormative ideas that shore up their idea of manhood. They start doubling down on ideas of men of color and immigrants being hyper predator rapists and criminals that allow for laws and policies that economically discriminate against those groups. There's this vacuum of, an, of a need for an idea of manhood in those moments because our ideas of being a provider, being a breadwinner, and being in economically independent are so wrapped up in our ideas of manhood that the kind of moment that we're in right now, where even white working class men are struggling to make a living, right? Even them. And when you hit that moment, that's when people like Joe Rogan show up because they're here to offer those men who are now feeling a certain kind of fear of economic emasculation, new solutions to their insecurity. So I, I want to um, relate to you something that I was told by a family member, an older white family member, who said he doesn't get why there's this effort to make it seem like his personality has been forced on him. In other words, he is a very much emotionally moved by John Wayne movies, you know, the, the idea of honor and country and stoicism and courage in the face of fear and you know, self-sacrificing, that very traditional idea of masculinity, he doesn't see that as being imposed upon him. He sees that as who he is. And he feels as though this progressive idea of masculinity is trying to take that away from him. What's your response to that? Do you feel like speaking English was imposed on you? Me, personally? Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah. Because you had to speak it in order to survive. Yeah. Or like to, yeah. I, that's what I would say about masculinity. It might not feel like it's being imposed because you have to learn it just to navigate the world. Like we have to learn language, but that doesn't mean that we didn't learn it from the world. And that doesn't mean that there was a really, and there, there is clearly, especially with masculinity in some ways, a really robust system of enforcing, of policing, of punishing people who don't do the things that are expected of them or don't have the kinds of bodies that they're expected to have in response to that kind of system. So what I would say to someone like that is, of course, there are positive traits that one can associate with their own idea of manhood. And I encourage all men to, instead of just accepting the ideas of manhood that they have been given, to think about what kind of manhood is in my integrity, 
What kind of man do I want to be? What do I want it to mean for me? And not feel like that needs to be a comparison with other men or a competition with other men or the idea that they have now captured the essence of true manhood and everyone else has not, right? Like there is, but, but I think I'll, I'll say something else, which is that in addition to that, I think we need to be careful that the things that we are putting into our ideas of manhood and womanhood, even for ourselves, are not things that are causing us or leading us to treat other people or even ourselves like we are missing the mark, like we are not what we are supposed to be. Do you think it's wrong for somebody to put on a, a pair of jeans and, and ride their horse and go target shooting? Is that the wrong thing for a guy to do? No, my point, I mean, I've done all those things. <laughs> my, my, my point is more that uh, there isn't a right or wrong answer to the question of what masculinity is. Manhood is a always evolving, always contested set of ideas that differs across the people you talk to or even a single person as they age, right? Like all right, my ideas of manhood when I was 10 are certainly different than they are now. And I imagine that's true for many people. And if they talk to their fathers or their mothers or their great grandfathers, their ideas would be different. So I think the point, there are so many different masculinities. And I think what that encourages us to do is to stop asking this question of which one's the right one, instead start asking which ones allow me to be actualized in the world, to be in the world in a way that makes my relationship to myself and other people more positive. Okay, so I, I hesitate to ask this of, of somebody who is in the philosophy department, but what does this mean in the real world as I go about my regular day? I mean, for example, what does this mean for chivalry? Do I still ask a, a guy to open the door for me? Do I still ask him to, to uh, pay for dinner if we're on a date? I think the main thing that I want people to take away from my work is a new level of awareness about what we are doing to ourselves and to other people in our social interactions and in our interactions with ourselves. And instead of it just being automatic for us all to each think about what is the blueprint for manhood and for womanhood that I have internalized? What are my ideas about what makes someone a man or a woman? And what are my ideas about what people should be like? And how do I impose those ideas on myself? How do I impose those ideas on other people? And in all of those interactions, are there ways that I can be wait for people to consent or to ask me, not, not assume things about what people are going to be like, not judge myself. You know, I think just being aware of the fact that we are constantly in this process of using our ideas about men and women as a filter to interact with living beings and the consequences of that is an, an essential step before we can get to bigger questions of now, what do we do about it now that we're aware of it? Okay, uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining this. This has been a really thoughtful conversation. Thank you for having me. Okay, so this was a challenging conversation and, and not just for some of you, for me too. Look, I, the conversation about gender and sexuality is changing all the time. And it's tough for me sometimes to fully keep up with it and understand and, and listen and and wrap my head around communities and identities that I don't belong to. I have to really listen to what people are saying. And I know that a lot of you have a lot of thoughts about it and a lot of opinions. And some of those thoughts happen while our guest is still talking. Luckily, you can let us know what you think and you can email us. It's hearmeout at slate.com. Lots of you are emailing us and you have done so already. 
Last week, we had Coleman Hughes on the show to make a case against reparations for descendants of enslaved people. We got a lot of mail about this show, but we want to share just one comment before we go. This email came from a listener named Dane. Dane wrote this, I want to say how much I appreciate the general tenor of this episode and the podcast more generally. I love this format. With that out of the way, I think Celeste is very obviously wrong on this issue. Why is a black family who had the benefit of living in the richest country in the world for generations more deserving of support than a refugee family arriving here penniless? Why is an upper-class descendant of slaves more deserving of a leg up than a poor Filipino family? As Coleman says, the actual victims of these injustices should have been compensated, that is, the people who were enslaved. My family arrived in the U.S. 35 years ago. None of them participated in or profited from slavery, redlining, you name it. So why are we on the hook to pay for these reparations? I get your point. There are lots of people who deserve a leg up, and I absolutely believe in a social safety net. On the other hand, the people who were enslaved were never compensated by the U.S. government as they should have been, and African Americans are at a major disadvantage in education, in income, in generational wealth. It's just time to make good on what the United States should have done 150 years ago, more than 150 years ago. It, it, it's time to pay that debt. So listen, we cover a lot of challenging and difficult opinions on this podcast, and we're sure that you have your own takes. We love hearing them. So please email us. It's hearmeout at slate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. So until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.